0: The Struggling Mind podcast is a space where people can talk about their experiences, that it's their version of events, that it's their words, and it's all about them. And it was important to provide that space because a lot of people feel that what they have to say isn't important or it isn't relevant, but it is because it will connect with somebody else that's listening. It will give that person hope that what they're going through, they're not alone. My name's Lee and I'm a life coach. And six years ago, I had a breakdown and I had to change my life. And by doing that, I needed to take back power of it. And it then enabled me to help others realize that they too can take back power and influence themselves. You can find me at www.leandersoncoaching.com or on Instagram at LeandersonCoaching. I hope you enjoy this season of the Struggling Mind podcast. Welcome to the Struggling Mind Podcast with me, Lee Anderson. The podcast offers a space to a host of amazing people to feel comfortable having a frank and honest conversation about experiences that have impacted their lives mentally, physically and emotionally, and how they've managed to navigate their way through their struggles. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Struggling Mind podcast with me, Lee Anderson. And my guest today is Steve. Steve, how the devil are you?
1: I'm good, man.
0: I'm good. How are you? I'm really, really well, thanks, mate. It's been a while. How's things?
1: Very well, mate. Very well. Um,
0: right, so mate, listen. Firstly, thank you for joining me on the on the podcast. I really appreciate. It. I know you're a busy man because you're sitting welcome. there. And you, for those for those of you that can't see him, he's sitting there in this really dapper uniform, and it's like a camouflagey kind of colour. And he's got this really nice bangle on as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mate, I'm so camouflaged. I'm literally just a floating head on the
0: screen. Right? <laughs> mate, you just want to give me some a quick intro? Uh,
1: yeah, so I'm Steve. Uh... Is it, this feels like Alcoholics Anonymous, like, hi, I'm Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. No, um, no. Uh, so yeah, Steve, uh, 39, currently serving in the British Army, uh, have done so for 23 years now, uh, and by trade, I'm currently a professional photographer for the military.
0: Ooh, nice. So first of all, mate, we do need to know your age, and you don't look it, by the way, so I'll just pay right, that Thank forward. you. Um, right so what i normally do mate just to kind of bed us in is ask three questions just random questions but it gives us a little bit of info about you personally do it up for that do it first question is if you could only keep three apps on your phone what three would you keep
1: facebook yeah my camera app is there such a thing well, it's an app on your phone, isn't it? I don't know, mate. I don't have a camera. All right. Okay. I'll go with I'll go with Facebook, WhatsApp, and my email.
0: Okay, they're good. They're good. Yeah, all I like right. them. I'm
1: all about I'm all about communicating, keeping in touch. You are the connection.
0: I like that. All right. So second yeah. question is, if you had a superpower, what would it be? And why? Oh
1: God, I'd love so many. I'd love so many. Um be greedy, if, I mate. Choose, oh, if I had to choose one.
0: Well, you got your Wonder Woman bracelet on, so do you want to be Wonder Woman? I
1: know, right? Yeah, the power <laughs> of the bracelet. Uh, do you know what? That's a really tough question. I would like to have the superpower to live forever. Really? Yeah.
0: You realise the implications of that, don't you? Well,
1: mm, depends. It depends how far down that rabbit hole you want to discuss. But I think you know, in the general concepts. You know, to not to not age but live forever. It's got it's got right. some attraction. All right, so we'll just call you Benjamin Button, shall we? Yeah. It'd
0: be amazing. Awesome. All right, cool. <laughs> so um, I won't see you on the other side at any time soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: right. And last three, question.
0: Go. This is this is always a telling question, I think. Um what's your favorite sandwich?
1: My favorite sandwich. It's a it's probably a toss-up between a classic BLT. Yeah and a coronation chicken.
0: Oh, with or without the salsanas? With. Oh! Yeah, serious. baby.
1: Yeah. Oh, no. They're like, little,
0: oh, they're like little rabbit poods. Rabbit mm. All right, okay, so fair enough then. <laughs> Keep the coronation chicken. I won't be sharing your sandwiches. Yeah. Um, So, Steve, like I said, mate, thanks very much. Obviously, we used to work in the same environment together. um, And obviously, we kind of used to just sit and chill for a while. And then we haven't seen seen each other for ages. And as I said to you at the beginning, um, you popped up on my Facebook feed. And I remember scrolling through and I was thinking to myself, who the fuck is this Terry geezer? Mm. And then I started scribbling down and then I found out who Terry is. Do you want to tell us about Terry?
1: Yeah. Where do you want me to start? Start with um, so just to yeah to rewind flipping hell, beginning of 2016 uh, I was out on a job and my vision went blurry and doubled didn't feel very very smart about it so I went to the doctor um, he he said yeah classic symptoms of a of a sinus infection squirt this up your nose take this tablet off your pop kind of thing I was like okay fine and i couldn't really see properly for, for 2 weeks you know i was hand railing around the house like a like a you know visually impaired person and um and things weren't particularly great so i went back to the doctor again got some different antibiotics a different spray to shove up my nose etc cetera, etc cetera. and this uh the the vision episode went on for about a month um but the whole the whole symptoms the sort of wider symptoms of the of the pressure headaches they went on for kind of 18 months. Um, and by that point, you know, I'd, I'd been for every sinus relief medication there was. I'd had several anti- courses of antibiotic and nothing was, nothing was taking away the headaches. Um, so I kept pushing the doctor to do something about it and just literally said, look, I'm at my wit's end. I, I can't sleep. My head is constantly throbbing. I need to know what's going on. Um, so he sent me for an MRI scan. Um, and then lo and behold, yeah, less than... 24 hours later while I was driving home for the weekend, the doctor rings me up and tells me there's something growing in my head that shouldn't really be there. Um, PS, have a good weekend. Uh, Pop in and see me Monday and we'll discuss it. Like, thanks. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so he'd got the medical report and obviously it was very neuro-specific. He didn't really um, understand all the sort of specifics in it. But yeah, the basic the basic gist of his call was, there's something growing in your head that shouldn't be there, um, and then it was a bit of a, a bit of a process to actually find out that um, what was growing in my head was a was a brain tumor. Wow, how did you feel when you first found out exactly a tumor? Um, it was pretty grim. So the whole the whole process was um, was pretty painful, to be honest. So like I say, I got the results as I was driving home on the motorway. Uh, rather than wait until the monday morning he rang me up and told me oh it's the doctor uh, i've got your results do you, do you want me to tell them to you i was like well can't you drive you home for the weekend fella but sure crack on you know you've, you've already sort of you've already broached the subject you can't leave me hanging now and as it had happened my missus um had already left the country by this point to go on a friend's hen do in amsterdam so i was at home all weekend on my own which wasn't a great you know, a great circumstance having just been told there's this thing in my head. Mm. Um, I then go back to work on the Monday morning, for him to still not be able to really tell me anything, and he couldn't get hold of the uh, neuro consultants at the time because they were busy, uh, and basically just had to send off a paper referral to get me in to see the neuro, the neuro team at um, the John Radcliffe. Yeah, that that process took just over two weeks. Okay. So I basically didn't sleep for two weeks, um, drunk myself into a bit of a stupor for two weeks. Um, and that's really, for me, like when the an- anxiety kicked in, um, you know, because all the time I've got this thing in my head saying, you know, what's growing in my head? Is it, you know, because the first thing you think of straight away is it is you've got cancer and you're going to die. Yeah. Um, but you're told there's something in your head. We don't know what it is you know, we can't give you any more information. You're just going to have to wait until you can be seen at the John Radcliffe, which, yeah, you appreciate you've got to join the queue like every other bugger, but at the same time, it like mentally destroys you. Um, so that was a long, painful process. Um, and then to top it off, I think I was the last, the last patient on the clinic on the day that I went. And obviously we all know, you know, doctors like a good gas and they always run over. So by the end of the day, you add all those patients that have run over. I think I was like an hour and a half behind my appointment. Wow. Okay, so by this time, you know, I've got flipping sweaty palms. My bum, holes doing 20 P 50 P and I'm just, sat, you know, shaking like a shitting dog um, to go in and see basically like basically going to have a chat with Dr. Death. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he, and he could sense because, He could sense the tension. Like, as soon as I walked in the room, he could see how uptight I was. He could see how concerned I was. I think my pupils were so big, you know, he must have thought, like, this bloke's going to flip in, punch me in the face in a minute or so. I was just so on on edge. Um, Like I said, slept for hardly two weeks by this point. I must have had the biggest black bags under my eyes and just generally looked a mess. Um, And the first thing, he sat me down. He said, right, I'll cut straight to the point. He says, you are the only person that's come in my clinic today that I haven't given irreversible, like, really detrimental news to. I was like, hmm, okay, take, take the gas off a little bit, calm down a little bit. Um, and then he sort of went into the full details, brought up, you know, brought up the scan pictures, showed me literally layer by layer um, of this MRI scan, which is fascinating, flipping stuff like. Um, and then gave me this description of what of what my tumor was, where it sat, uh, what it meant, you know, and how it's how it's going to possibly um, affect me and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, what did it look like, just out of curiosity? So, my tumor what? is currently, to try and describe it, is probably just a little bit bigger than a sugar cube. Okay. So it started. It started off um, at about. I think they said it was about 2.2 by 1.8 centimeters. So, yeah, about a a sugar cube. And it sits literally in the middle of my skull at the back. Right. What happens is your, the reason I was getting sinus um, symptoms was because it was sat on the back of my sinus canal. So, your sinus canal goes up through your nose, right through the middle of your head, and then kind of opens up into a V shaped channel at the back of your skull. Right. And it sat right in the middle. Um, between my skull and my brain, pushing into that into that blood supply, right. which then gives you the headaches, the sinus symptoms. Um, but obviously because of its situation, or its location, sorry, it means that it can't ever come out because it is sat on that main blood supply. So of course you go from, you know, being up here at 100 mile an hour, flipping ang- anxious as God knows what, to be told you haven't got cancer. So you kind of cool down a little bit, but you then get told, but your tumour can't come out which could cause other complications. So we need to look at other um, methods of treatment and stuff like that, because surgery isn't an option. Um, Or surgery to remove it isn't an option, should I say. Is
0: that because of of where it's located?
1: Because of where it's located. As as soon as they touch it, I'd basically bleed to death on the operating table. Oh, man. So we then have to discuss um, what could be done about it. Um, so basically I was then teed up for uh, a week in the John Radcliffe to have uh, what they call a, uh, a vent- ventricle perineal shunt or something like that, uh, which is basically a pressure release valve that they slot in the back of your brain, right uh, and then connect that via a tube to your stomach cavity. So I had to have basically brain surgery and the male version of a C-section. And then they bait, they then shoved a metal rod underneath my skin down across my rib cage and connected the tube from my head to my stomach.
0: Ooh!
1: Which is a bit yeah. cheeky, a bit cheeky. Yeah. But, but we also... I've uh, neglected one little part of the story, which was... Uh, Why do I feel so like this is well, going to be an important part as well? Say again?
0: Why do I feel like this is going to be an important
1: part? <laughs> no, no, it's just <laughs> another character, another character. So okay. bef- before we add... Um, before we had surgery on Terry, we had, we had Barry for a little bit and Barry was the brain monitor. Okay. So when I got admitted into the John Radcliffe, uh, they had to put a pressure probe into my brain to test right. the pressure. Um, because that's one of the sort of scales of escalation that they have to test before they actually go, right, we're going to drill into this guy's brain and, and do something. Um, so in the front of my skull, just sort of in my hairline, uh, they, they basically bored a little hole and dropped drop to, drop a to pressure probe in, right? coiled up the spare cable and stitched it to the side of my head and then connected me via usb to a computer not even joking (laughs) i can can see your face mate this is amazing but i'm like this is absolutely (laughs) gen right i don't want to call you morpheus or something i know so i'm sat in a hospital bed literally plugging my brain in via usb2 yeah to a computer that measures my my brain pressure now um, to give you a Eh?
0: The upgrade, upgrade,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, USB C. <laughs> but um, there was—I can't remember exactly what the scale of measurement was. But let's just say, for example, it went from naught to twenty. An, an average person's brain pressure should be between naught and five. Wow. Mine, mine, at sort of standing pressure, like normal, uh, sat down, relaxed, was somewhere like fifteen. And then when they laid me down, it went—it went so high it didn't even register on the computer. Wow. So the doctor was kind of there with his clipboard sort of nodding with a, with a raised eyebrow going, "Yep, you're going in for surgery, big fella. So, um, so Barry, the brain monitor was with me for, I think about 48 hours. Uh, and then some, some little 12 year old doctor come and woke me up on his rounds at five o'clock in the morning, you know, cracking his rubber gloves next to my bed and just said, um, Mr. Blake, if you'd like to sit up, I'm going to take your brain monitor out. I was like, sorry, what? He said, if you'd like to sit up, I'm going to take your brain monitor out. I was like, hold on a minute, fella. Let, let me just get a grasp of this. So you, so 48 hours ago, I went in for surgery, right? You put me out cold to so drill a hole in my head and put a brain monitor in, and you're just going to take it out next to my fucking bed. And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you just sit nice and still, I'll just pull the cable and it'll come out. Oh. So without any without anaesthetic, he took the stitches out the side of my head with the spare cable, literally pulled it, oh, until, it, until, it went, until it popped out my head. <laughs> and, then it, <laughs> and then again, without anaesthetic, closed the hole up with another couple of stitches and said, right, you can go back to sleep now.
0: Right, so I'm sitting here with my legs crossed.
1: <laughs> like, seriously, mate, I think
0: my testicles have gone to the, the base of my stomach.
1: Mate, that was before our brain surgery. That was oh. like the warm-up act. So then, I, yeah. So then I went in for brain surgery on Terry, um, and I suppose one one key part of the story that I've I've probably missed out because we're getting all excited about about names of stuff, is that um, I was due I was due to get married uh, in the August of two thousand and seventeen. When I got my diagnosis was May two thousand and seventeen, and the original plan was to leave surgery until after the wedding. Yeah, Um, But actually having looked at some of my test results of uh, they they did like loads of scans of my eyes, you know, when they can look into the back of your eyes and look at all your nerves and whatever. Well, a lot of the telltale signs was that it was really bad pressure. So obviously before we got to the stage where we had Barry fitted, he was like, we might actually need you in before your wedding. So I had all of this done and was discharged from hospital, having had three brain surgeries in a five day period, 10 days before I got married. And you still got married? Yeah. Mate. I literally, I literally, we'll get onto that bit in a minute. But yeah, I literally just survived my own wedding day. It was horrific. Um, so yeah, so we had Barry, he stayed for two days. I then went for brain surgery to fit this um, pressure release valve. So I got, a, I got about a two inch, one to two inch uh, cut in the back of my skull. Obviously skinned like a, you know, skinned like a rabbit. Um, they did the surgery connect, cut my stomach open, connected the tube, did all that sort of stuff. Um, and I woke up feeling like I'd been hit by a double decker bus, really, horrendous. Imagine. Um, I then got sent for a confirmatory scan, which showed that the, the valve hadn't been seated in my ventric, vent, ventriculars, ventricles. Yeah. Ventricles. You got two ventricles, one either side. So they tried to sight it in the ventricle which because mine have been under so much pressure had shrunk and it wasn't sighted properly. So it wasn't doing that release of pressure and it had all just gone peatong. on. Um, so I was for the next 24 hours was sucking morphine out of a tube um, and was just in a bit of clip. So I then had to go and have another brain surgery the day after to rectify it all, which obviously increased the scar. They had to drill another hole in my skull to position it again, slightly different. Uh, so basically I had, day-on, day-off brain surgery for five days.
0: What sort of brain. impact had
1: that on um, It was pretty grim, if I'm honest. Um, my wife-to-be at the time was in between changing jobs, so she couldn't come and visit me. I think she came up. She came up and visited me in between brain surgery two and three, and then had to go home again. Uh, my mum and dad came to visit me for a day, uh, I had my chief clerk come in so I could update my will before I went in for surgery because I was proper panicking. Um, and it was horrendous. You know, my missus was changing jobs. She was due in for things like final dress, wedding dress fittings on the weekend. And, and because the first surgery failed, I wasn't then at home for when I should have been at home. Cause I'd stay back in hospital. Yeah, um, yeah it was grim. It was grim. Um, so the time my- between, sorry, mate, go on. No, I was just gonna say, and by the time I'd had my third surgery, uh, I literally had the confirmation scan the following morning. And they said, Yeah, cool, here's a pack of paracetamol, you can go home now.
0: Seriously? Yeah. And so you what? You had ten days, did you say, between that pack of paracetamol and getting married?
1: Yeah. So you- I got so I got yeah, so I got discharged Second.
0: What rehabilitation did you go through? None. At all? And this is,
1: no, and this is and this is part of uh, how how the system failed me. So I got so I got discharged with ten days till my wedding. Normally they like fourteen days before you have your stitches out, but I had a culmination of stitches and staples. Obviously, I had my stomach and my head done, and the scar on my head's quite quite big. Excuse me. So. I had to kind of persuade them to take them out early, but then I had issues where my, my scar hadn't actually healed. So it was all a bit touch and go because by this point, you know, I had hair out here in some place, you know, big hair in some places, bold patches in others where I'd been scalped for surgery, but my hair was full of dried blood. It was full of iodine. It was full of all that post-surgery hospital junk oh, um, that I needed to get out to go and get married. Um, You're looking a bit and like touching. such a... Yeah, it was touch and go, mate. It was touch and go. Um, But I managed it. Um, I think I got my hair cut the day before we got married. By this point, I'd had to arrange for someone to drive me to the venue because I'd lost my driving licence because of the surgery. Um, And then basically plied half my family with packs of paracetamol and bags of Haribo to keep me going for the day. Um, So I think on my whole wedding day, I think I had one glass of champagne And half a pint of beer, and I was and I was in bed before twelve o'clock. Absolutely, absolutely ruined. I think that was the longest, the longest I'd been on my feet since since surgery. God, I mean, it was tough. So, was postponing the wedding not an option? No, because it would have meant we were we were too close, too close, and we would have lost lost all our money. Yeah, of course, I totally get that. So, yeah. yeah, it was interesting, man. Really interesting. I'm like, I mean, so
0: where are you now, then, in regards to obviously the tumor? Has it reduced? Yep.
1: So yeah, so I have been lucky. Um, a year after, a year after surgery, so summer, summer '18, um, I got the dreaded news that my tumor was growing a little bit faster than they would have liked it to. Um so they we then had to kind of kick in to plan B, which was to have some uh radiotherapy. So I had to go and get I had to go and f- get fitted up for a like a proper face mask and everything that they use to strap you to the bed with. They strap you to the radiation bed via your mask, and it's all very serial killer-like, which is pretty cool. Um and I went in for a for quite a high dose, a high dose of radiotherapy, which I think I got scanned like a couple of months after because they have to kind of let the, let the impact of the, of the radiation do its thing and, and calm down a little bit. And the initial scan was looking good. So we were like, fine. Um, and over, yeah, over the last two years, my annual scans I've showed, have showed reduction, um, minimal reduction, but you know, I'll take, I'll take any, any 0.00, naught of a millimeter that I can get. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I have been quite lucky so far, um, we just have to, just have to continue to hope, um, that, that that, that stays the case, you know? Yeah. So how does that fit into life then? I mean, having this thing
0: in the back of your head <clears throat> that is reducing at the slowest, slowest weight that it can, how
1: does that impact your life? Um, initially quite a lot. Um, so initially it was a, a massive mental and physical battle. So obviously I mentioned mentioned at the beginning the, the whole impact of the diagnosis initially because yeah. you know I'd I'd spent by that point somewhat like 18 years in the military. The worst, the worst I'd ever had was a cold or a sprained ankle. I'd never really been ill. I'd only ever had one minor operation in hospital. Um and and for all intents and purposes, I was fit as a fiddle, you know. And then all of a sudden you get this diagnosis out of the blue and it smashes you so hard in the nuts. You're just like, whoa. Um, And I think it was, it was a real wake up call because like I say, you know, I'd done 18 years at that point in the military. I'd been in and out of Afghanistan, done some pretty hairy stuff and been in some quite dangerous situations, but never really had I kind of had that life flashing before my eyes kind of moment. Um, And I think that you know, that two week period between getting told I had something wrong and actually seeing someone, and then the period from seeing someone to actually going and having some surgery, I had, I think, far too much time on my hands to think about what could go wrong, or the what ifs, and the, you know, what if this and what if that, what if it is cancer, you know, so, you know, me and the wife shed a lot of tears, drunk a lot of gin, um, you know, reflected on, what we needed to do to fucking, you know, tidy up our admin if we needed to, you know, we went and got uh, new wills done. We made sure our life insurance policies were all up to date. And, you know, done all that kind of really morbid stuff that you you would do normally. And we had done um, as, as adults, but it was kind of a more, with more of a purpose that if the shit hit the fan or something was wrong, then my missus was going to be well looked after. Um, and then obviously I had the surgery and I was basically housebound for sort of four months. I couldn't really walk. You know, they'd cut through all my stomach muscles to get to my stomach cavity for this tube. Um, my head, I think my head was numb for the best part of a year, 18 months. So that wasn't really the problem. It was more the abdominal stuff because I couldn't, I couldn't get in and out of a chair on my own. I couldn't sit on the toilet on my own. I couldn't wash myself because I couldn't get in the shower. I couldn't get in a bath, you know, so I was reliant on my wife because she just started a new job. So I'm at home on my own from eight till five with the odd visitor because obviously all the people I know are at work themselves. Yeah. So again, I'm back in that rut of being stuck on my own too much time to think Did the stupid things like Googling and YouTube in what your procedure was trying to, trying to watch, watch videos. And then, you know, within the first five seconds, you realize you've made a fucking big mistake and it you just don't want to watch it. Um, and I think probably for a good, I don't know a good 18 months, two years, it was just like a downhill spiral of Anxiety, you know, I was struggling to sleep, like consistently struggling to sleep. Um, I had really low mood. I was depressed. Just had no interest in anything really. Yeah. Uh, I ate, I ate too much. I drank too much, and was just generally fucking miserable. Yeah. Um, so I ended up, I ended up going to the doctor, laying my cards on the table, and just saying, "Look, I'm not, I'm not me. I need, I need to do something." Um, I'd put on loads of weight, just generally didn't have, you know, any get up and go. And um, it got me to fill in like an online questionnaire thing and just said, yeah, that's, that scored pretty highly kind of thing. So we'll get you, we'll get you seen to. Um, and by this point, uh, I'd, I'd kind of fell through the net with a lot of other stuff. So you mentioned earlier about rehabilitation um, because of the seriousness and the intensity of what I had done, I should have gone off and had some residential rehabilitation courses at places like Tedworth House or Headley Court. Yeah. Um, but I, there was a, a miscommunication as I was working for an army organisation, but with an R, within an RAF camp. So there was a bit of a miscommunication and a bit of a cock-up between the army side of the medical chain and the RAF side and all you know, all this kind of stuff added to the, to the error. And I, I basically didn't get any rehabilitation. None at all? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, so what I then did get was as, as a result of me having to go out and fight for it. Um, so I spoke to the doctor initially and I got myself referred to, um, one of the army welfare teams and had some, some support for, for my mental health. um and i was i was with them for for about 18 months uh i then had to try and get myself back into back into work because i was quite keen to finish my career the way i started it um and was hoping that i'd be allowed to do so so i had to get get through a medical board um which again was a bit of a challenge when you turn up and the the doctor hadn't read your notes properly and assumed that your tumor had been taken out. You then had to drop him the bombshell that it hadn't, and didn't know at that point whether that was the career-defining moment. Do you know what I mean? It's like actually, no, I've still got a tumor. Oh, oh, okay, mate. Then in that case, you're out. Do you know what I mean? Sort of. Yeah, of course. So luckily, I luckily I got through med board, um, was able to, and actually did promote in the same year. So that was so that was a bit of a bonus. A bit.
0: Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was that, but like I say, I still hadn't had any rehab or struggling. Um, I was under physio by this point, I think. So I managed to get some physio, but then because of the promotion, I had to move location. So I had to start the process again. Um, so that was a bit of a bugbear. Um, so it's just kind of the whole, the whole kind of process is just because of the nature of the job has just lacked continuity because mm. um, I kind of got a diagnosis in one place, then got moved somewhere else, then got promoted, moved somewhere else. That that place then relocated because the MOD had sold the estate off, so I've moved somewhere else. And here I am now, sort of for four years down the line, still getting physioed and still trying mm-hmm. to get my body back moving the way it should have been. Um, so, yeah.
0: But is that... So physically, I mean your wife was looking after you and you're yeah. kind of having to get that mental support that you needed um and you said about the AWS <clears> yeah. and obviously the way they were supporting you did you not go to DCMH as well
1: i did go to DCMH initially yeah because once uh once i'd done my initial assessment with a doctor he he sent me straight to DCMH um i went only went to them i think a couple of times And they they were sort of under the impression that unless I was sort of very well not very but unless I was kind of men like I don't know medically mentally ill right that that's kind of their arena whereas kind of the the kind of I don't know maybe the more social aspects of it or the non medical aspects of mental health so your your stresses your anxieties your depressions are kind of dealt with by aws whereas there, you know dcmh are more kind of your ptsd you know and that and that sort of side of life so
0: i totally get that because obviously i used to work for aws and we used to do a lot of referrals to dcmh and we wouldn't cross-pollinate but i yeah. think because of the fact of the nature and obviously the tumors still existing that maybe they would have you would have leaned more towards them for support but so what kind of what kind of practices did you put in put in place for yourself in regards to your mental health?
1: Um, so a lot of, I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the stuff that helped initially was just having somebody to vent to. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of one of these blokes, I've only got a very small circle of friends, you know, and the small circle of friends that I have, I, I trust them implicitly. Mm. But sometimes you just don't want to always speak to your mates about stuff that's wrong. You want to speak to them about the exciting stuff and, the, you know, what did you do at the weekend and let's get together and have a glass of wine or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and obviously my wife was with me kind of 24-7 and you just kind of don't always want to bore the same people with it. But also it's it's having an impartial view on it as well, isn't it? Yeah, um although although initially i found it very weird to sit in a room with a bloke i'd never met before and spill my complete guts to him about my emotions what i was feeling why i was getting so upset and why i was you know in front of him absolutely bawling in tears like um but actually i think i found i found peace with it eventually um and obviously built a relationship with him that was purely based on that on that scenario yeah. We kind of had a bit of banter as well, you know, with both squaddies, but had a bit of banter, I think, which helps. But there was no kind of there was no crossing the line. He didn't know anything about my personal life. He didn't know anything about me, my views, my my thoughts on anything other than what I told him in that room. So he was literally judging me, the scenario, and what you know, kind of what I was feeling and expressing to him as, as I gave it to him. Yeah. Um, and I suppose in some ways that that was easier for me to then get, get the feedback. Um, so I don't, I don't remember exactly what all these funky processes were called, but, um, one of them was all surrounded in, in sort of gratitudes. So it's, so it was working out, uh, like what you were feeling, like what negative, what negative thoughts you were having and how you could turn that into a positive and, you know, having time for yourself to sit and think about what you were grateful for and, you know, going out, going out for a walk and just make it having an emphasis on listening to the birds singing or, or whatever, just to try and find a bit of calm. Because I think, I think at that time, my life personally didn't feel very calm. It felt very, very stressy, very uptight, very anxious because, Every, every single moment that I got the slightest whiff of a headache post-surgery, I was like, fucking hell, my tumor's growing. And, and at one point, I'd talked myself into it so much because it was over the winter when clearly a lot of people suffer with their sinuses in the colder months anyway. And I talked myself into it so much um, that I ended up getting the doctor to ring the hospital to get me in for an emergency scan because I was that convinced that there was something going on. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's easy and done. It's hard. It is hard because you can't you can't fucking see it. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's not like I've broken my arm and I can see if the bone's sticking through the skin. It's not like I've broken my arm and I can see I've got a cast on it. And I know that if I don't muck about the cast comes off in eight weeks, we scan it, everything that's cool. I can see my arm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally think when it's in your brain and it's like in the back of your head and you've just got no concept of what it's doing. And because of all the all the niggles and all the pains and all the funny sensations you get after surgery when the anaesthetic wears off and when, you know, because your skin is now tight because of being stitched back together and all this kind of stuff, it's fucking horrific, man. Really? It is honestly horrific. Um, and it just sent me into this massive flat spin, constantly worried that I wouldn't wake up every night I went to bed. God, I, I I
0: couldn't even, I can't even, yeah. Um, so in regards to you and your wife, do you have open dialogue about how she how it impacted her and how she feels about it, and obviously how it's affecting how it was affecting your relationship in in a way because of the fact that you was off of work, she started a new job, you relocated, you just got married, and you're kind of living with this tumor that is pretty much dictating your your
1: life. We did we did eventually. Um, but it was only, I'd probably say it was about six months after surgery because there was so much, there was so much going on, excuse me. And my wife, you know, bless her has been an absolute flipping legend. Um, and she was trying to hold it all together for me. So, you know, she was still at home trying to continue with wedding planning while I was in hospital and juggle her new job that she literally started the Monday I got taken to hospital um, she was trying to still keep a brave face when people were ringing her up, asking her about flower arrangements and cakes and all this like the other. Whereas actually it transpires that she was at home for 90% of the time, crying into a, crying into a glass of gin, worried about me. Um, and then obviously when I did come home, it was then all her not wanting to show that she was struggling because she was then looking after me because, like I say, I couldn't go to the toilet on my own. I could, literally couldn't walk more than about four paces, but I had to be held up at the time because I couldn't, I couldn't support my own, my own weight. Um, so, it, so it took a bit of a while, but, but actually she was in quite a dark place for a little, a little period as well, um, all, all stemming from you know, her, her worries and concerns over me. Of course, I totally get that. And so, when
0: did when did you start kind of talking about how you were feeling? Like both um, of you,
1: probably yeah, probably about six months or so after. Um, and now it's 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 kind of at that stage now where it's like it, it's one of those conversations that's like completely fair game. There's no there's no treading on eggshells. There's no you know, fannying around the around the subject. And she knows now uh, and has noticed over the last couple of years that I'm pretty much fine. If I say to her, I've got a bit of a niggle in my head, you could see her perk up straight away. And she's like, well, what sort of niggle? Where does it hurt? What does it feel like? And I'm like, you know, don't worry. It's just, you know, I've just got a bit of a sinus, whatever, you know. And and it's and it's sort of at the front of her mind, but it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, but she, she identifies that about two to three weeks before I'm due my annual scan, I start to go quite quiet and I start oh, to get right. a bit tense, uh, oh, yeah. a, little bit, a little bit snappy and a little bit grumpy. Yeah. Um, and she, she said to me after my last scan, um, she's like, do you, do you feel better now? And I was like, oh, I feel fine. Why? And she said, oh, just because, you know, over the last couple of weeks, you've been like this. And I was like, have I? She went, yeah, yeah. She said you did it last year as well because it was G. You were due your annual scan. I was like, oh, okay. You know. So she's identified patterns of like patterns
0: of behaviour in you, then. Yeah. So yeah. with you saying to her like, when you feel these niggles, there has to be a certain niggle for you to feel for you to express it to her. And is that your way of kind of saying to her, "Look, I'm feeling this. Don't worry, but I'm just letting you know." Some yeah. Yeah,
1: because I think because I think initially it was quite hard to differentiate because I didn't, I didn't know what the pain was. So before, before my diagnosis, I just keep get, kept getting told you've got a sinus infection and it was like, okay, but we're now like at the year point, surely all these drugs you've given me should have got rid of this sinus infection. When, when it was identified that it was a tumor and the symptoms I was feeling was because of the tumor, I then associate every time I get that sinus pain or that blockage in the front of my head as as it being an issue with with terry um so post-surgery there wasn't like an immediate change it was i still had the headaches i still had the dull kind of sinusy feeling at the front of my head as well so there was quite a long period before i started to relax into what was my new normal Right, um, and and what my head would feel like going going forward, um, and it's taken me yeah it's taken me a couple of years to adjust, but I like I say I over that that one winter I panicked so much that I was having all these sinus related pains and and feelings that I got them to send me in for an emergency scan because I was adamant that there was something going wrong with my tumor, yeah. Um, whereas now I know that come kind of dependent, obviously dependent on the Great British weather which is probably why I need to move to the Maldives. But um, <laughs> I know that when the weather changes, I start to get sinus problems. You know, I'm more susceptible to getting getting that sort of thing. So I kind of have to, to recognise that and just go with it, knowing that when the weather turns again in six months' time, everything's cushy, everything's rosy. Um, I just have to be careful that I don't damage my my pressure valve that sticks out my head, and we're all good.
0: So I was going to say that, so that was going to be my next question. So well, well led. Um, are you more conscious of things like obviously hats and, and um, even i am not you've got earphones in, you know, whether that would affect anything, you know, because of the, like, yeah. it's, it's, those things go through your mind.
1: Yeah. So where my valve sits, if you, if you sort of run a line from the top of your earlobe round to the back of your skull, yeah. Um, a couple of inches round the back of my ear is where the valve sits, so it's prime position for things like uh, bicycle helmets, which was one thing I had to be conscious of. Uh, hard hats at work, baseball caps, sunglasses, and all all that sort of stuff, because a straight mm. a straight armed sunglass would hit my hit my valve, whereas a normal sort of curved sunglass arm would go oh, yeah. beyond my ear and everything's fine. Yeah. So I do have to be careful with it. Yeah, um, I've had to adjust my sleeping position as well um because i always sleep on that side but i now have to sleep kind of more over on that side more like i'm in a three-quarter prone position recovery position than than normal because prolonged pressure on it um can obviously damage it it's only it's only made of plastic um and obviously if it damages and stops functioning then we go back to square one and i have to go back and have brain surgery again
0: so what about things like playing with your son? I mean, obviously your son is quite young, so you're going to be kind of playing about on the floor that. Are you really conscious yeah. of the play within
1: in regards to that? Um, not massively, no. I mean, he's, he's yeah, I wouldn't say he's, he's at the stage where he's like full on rough and tumbling yet, um, but we're trying to, trying to sort of instilling him quite early on to have like gentle hands. Right. Because um, occasionally, you know, like when kids don't want to do something, they try to push you away, and we sort of, like, oh, you know, gentle hands and whatever. Because he has caught me on it a couple of times, not not on purpose. And you just sort of have to say to him, "Oh, you've got to be gentle." Yeah. Um. But yeah, he's being fine, you know. And I'm I'm sort of getting my getting my fitness back on track. I've lost all the weight that I put on, which is good. Yeah. I that. yeah so you know, so mentally, kind of. Kind of getting my ass back in gear, I suppose, and I feel feel much better. You know, getting to the gym helps me. I think gives me a bit of headspace, helps mm. keep the weight off. Um, and yeah, over over lockdown, crikey, version one, I think it was. I just stood in front of the mirror one day. None of my clothes fitted me. I think out of I've got something ridiculous like forty-eight shirts in my wardrobe, and only two of them fit me like, just fit me. Well, are we talking like, up or down here? Up or down what? As in, like, they're too big or too small? Oh, no, they were too small. Okay. So I was like, I've got all these shirts, they now don't fit me because I've got super fat and I need to do something about it. I didn't um, mean so yeah. to say anything, mate. No, 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 it's cool. But, in <laughs> yeah, so in lockdown, in lockdown one, I think I shedded two and a half stone. Wow, well done. yeah so it's just now you know now i'm allowed back to the office uh, cuz obviously i'll shield him for quite a long time yeah and you know get back into the get back into the gym um get back into more of a routine which is what i like being stuck at home gives me too much time to fester on mm-hmm. things that i don't want to fester about so yeah it's good
0: so what does normal look like for steve now
1: um normal looks pretty normal um i've still I've still got not as well I still don't have as many abs as I would like I'm still working on working on the rehab to uh to get my to get my stomach muscles strengthened All right. um but day to day i'm you know i'm back in I'm back in my full-time job um there are some restrictions on what I am you know what I can and can't do at work for obvious reasons yeah. um so for the last, uh, well since surgery so for the last four years I've not I've not really been allowed to deploy or anywhere or go anywhere uh, so I'm sort of mainly UK office based um, but like I say've've I've, I've been able to continue my career. Uh, my career is naturally coming to an end very soon and I can claim my pension which will be nice yeah
0: um,
1: but normal yeah normal is now pretty normal which is good you know. I don't. I don't feel like I've constantly got this black cloud above me anymore. I don't. Yeah. I don't constantly feel like I've got something to worry about. Now, don't get me wrong. There are still days now where I have a bit of an old fuck moment, or I have a bit of a panic about something. Um, and I think it was about this time last year, in the midst of in the midst of lockdown, I ended ended up back at AWS for a couple of months, just because the whole lockdown thing was getting to me. Um, and it was just all becoming a little bit shit. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, life life's generally pretty good.
0: And are you more aware of the way that you feel? And do you acknowledge it a lot more now?
1: Yeah. And I think that's why, that's why I nipped it in the bud quite quick last year and got myself back to AWS again. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I was I I felt myself going back down the slope that I went down before, yeah. Um, and like I say, I was quite depressed. I was very anxious. Um, everything was shit. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to eat and drink because I thought, you know, if I'm going to die tomorrow, at least I'm not going to die hungry and without a nice glass of wine in my hand. <laughs> you know <laughs> and that was kind of that was kind of the mantra that I'd adopted so I thought if I'm going to drop dead because of a brain tumor then I might as well flip and enjoy what time I've got left isn't it well um, that right yeah but no so I so yeah I, I identified it pretty soon on um, sat and had a chat with a wife about it and just said look you know it's nothing it's nothing personal because I think sometimes she feels that maybe I should talk to her more about stuff but it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like I don't always feel the need to burden my wife with like a hundred percent of the information, but I will talk to her about 90% of it. Yeah. You know, not try to fully burden her, but obviously she's my wife. You know, we, we discuss everything. There's no, there's no topics that are, you know, off, off topic in our house kind of thing. Mm. Um, But sometimes you just need that little bit of separation
0: absolutely and i think that very objective kind of view from somebody else that isn't emotionally attached to you allows you to kind of see something from a from a completely different perspective do you know what i mean because there's no yeah. judgment
1: and, and also stuff. they're trained they're trained to give you the advice uh, yeah. you know my wife my wife's a, a, a clever individual but she's not she's not trained in dealing with people's mental health she can she can sit there and try and give me a her objective view on what she thinks but that may or may not be the be the solution mm. um but you know throughout throughout the whole thing you know she's been an absolute legend and it's kind of in the beginning it was like just completely ripping our world apart do you know what i mean it's like we'd had all these plans we were we just bought a house we were planning our wedding and all of a sudden this flipping rip tide comes in flips the boat up upside down and you're like what um, so it was tough you know um, and then of course the following year when they rang me up and said oh you need to come in and have some radiation um, we were planning we, we were planning our honeymoon because obviously we had to delay that initially I was just because surgery. You, so they were like oh can you pop in pop in in you know the first week of June I was like no so I'd go on on my honeymoon 10 days later I said I've been there and I'm not doing that again I said so yeah. I'll have my honeymoon and I'll see you fuckers when I get back <laughs> And um, so just
0: yeah. quickly, while I'm thinking of it, um, the is it is it under the skin or above the skin?
1: So it's under the skin, right? So I was going to say, but where? Like, but, but it sort of, but it protrudes out of the skull, right? Okay. So there's, so the best way I can describe it, I guess, is they've put a hole, they drilled a hole in my skull. Yeah. There's a tube. There's a tube that goes in the skull and goes into the the ventricle. Yeah. And then on the outside of the skull, but underneath the skin is the valve and connected to the valve is the tube that then goes down under the skin, across the collarbone, across the rib cage and connects down into your rib, into your stomach cavity.
0: And I take it there's enough tube that is flexible, that it's not going to get caught around any, any, any anything internally, but there's enough that if you're, that correct, that, if yeah. you're in a sort of pose or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah correct. Um, and, and quite cleverly, if, if they do, or they do, they do this operation on small kids quite, quite often, they'll somehow very cleverly put a coil of the tube in, inside the body. So as the kid grows, the tube grows with them. Wow. So it's very clever, but the downside of it is like you say, I've got to be careful with things like my work helmet, my bicycle helmet, any hats that I wear, um, obviously woolly hats are fine. Um, but I can't. Because of because of where my muscles have uh, initially not been or, well, not some of my muscles weren't used. Obviously, they were cut in my stomach, so yeah. some of my muscles weren't used because they'd been cut, and others were overcompensating for the muscles that weren't working. So yeah. my body just went very stiff. Um, like I said, I wasn't very active and couldn't really couldn't really walk about much. So my body just kind of seized up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: At the end of it, I'm thinking, do you know what I could really do with a good sort of deep tissue massage? Because there's parts of my neck and my shoulders that I could never have massaged because of the tube God, in it. Yeah. So it's like you kind of feel a little bit cheated now in some respects that I could go for a, a back, neck, and shoulders, but I'd actually want a discount because I'm only having one shoulder done. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: yeah. And I take it sports are out of the question as well, they? Right? certain sports are out of the question.
1: Um. According according to my uh, my neurosurgeon, uh, he'd he'd previously done this same operation on a competitive rugby player and has had no dramas. Really? Me personally wouldn't wouldn't be risking it if I was honest.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I'll be. Mean, bit.
1: just just the thought of having to lose my driving license for a minimum of six months and go through brain surgery again if the valve breaks yeah I, I wouldn't be rushing to go and stick my head in a scrum and ruffle ruffle around on a rugby pitch like <laughs>
0: oh. so I'm mentally not. you're in a much better place
1: now yeah definitely physically definitely.
0: you're kind of working on yourself
1: yeah i mean there's 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 a lot of a lot of my physical ability which is miles miles better than than where it where it was um like i say i'm just still working on having physio for, for sort of core strength, really Um, my abs. Yeah. My abs are almost non-existent. Um, and I, you know, I have a massive, massive appreciation now for, for women that have babies by C-section, um, because it, it, it impacts you massively. Mm. Um, and I mean, I went, I went in after my first operation for my, uh, confirmatory scan because you walk in, you, you know, they take you down in a wheelchair and do all that duty of care stuff. You get into the, into the radiology suite and they're like, right, if you can just sit on the bed and then lie yourself down, it's like, I, I can't. They're like, well, we can't lift you because it's health, against health and safety. Right. Like, so so w- what do you want me to do? Like, so I literally s- struggled up on the bed, went to lie down because I've got no stomach muscles straight down. And then when different. I finished, when I finished, I said, can you help me up? And they went, no, we're not allowed to lift you. So said, well, how do you expect me to get off? And they're like, well, you might just have to kind of carefully roll yourself off. And I'm like, I've just had brain surgery, right? You want me to roll off the scanning bed? Mate, I'm going to end up as a fucking sack of spuds on the floor. Not going to that. So go on, yeah, just a little, it, a little bit to your left. Help, they wouldn't help me. It was ridiculous. Ridiculous.
0: <clears throat> oh, mate. So, Steve. What would you say to anybody that is either currently found out or is currently going through what you went through?
1: Speak to people yeah absolutely absolutely speak to people um, there's there's you know some great charities out there. there's some great support networks for people with brain tumors um i work I work quite closely with brain tumor research um purely based on the fact that there's so little funding from the government allocated to research into brain tumours out of all the, out of all the cancer charities. Mm-hmm. Um, yet they have such an impact, you know, and, and the statistics of the amount of people that die, children that die of brain tumours and adults under 40 and all sorts. It's, it's horrific. Um, but having also um, had a couple of friends that have been diagnosed with various forms of tumours, uh, since I have, I think the key really is to is to speak to people, is to to sort of form your support network, but also try to get a really good and clear, concise, and you know, logical understanding of what your condition actually is. Um, right. Because the world of brain tumors is so vast, it's just crazy. Um, because there's so many different types but it also depends on where they're situated as to what other effects could, could cause you, sure. um, you know, and I would, I would consider myself extremely lucky to to kind of be in the position that I'm in. Um, and bizarrely enough, three years before my diagnosis, my mum went for exactly the same thing and her tumor was massive. Um, and she's been really lucky as well. Wow. So it's, It's it's one of those where, you know, I I couldn't I couldn't ever be in a position to give advice to anyone that was diagnosed with a tumor because there's you know like I say there's so many variations and so many what ifs but there are loads and loads of people out there that will support you Um, and certainly within the neuro uh, the neuro wards of all the hospitals they have. Macmillan specialist nurses that are there to support you on a 24 7 um phone line you know so if you've and i've run them a couple of times you know if you've got a niggle in the middle of the night and you can't you can't work out what it what it means you just ring them up that's what they're there for you know they work on the ward they are specialists in in that area and they're there to help you um and i think the key is you know to speak to people and just make sure that you're not trying to battle it on your own yeah because it's you know it's a complex beast and i think if you do do it on your own you end up in that in that kind of position that i was in and probably many others have been in where you've just got too many questions that you can't answer so you just beat yourself up about it you end up not sleeping because you're stressed and anxious about it and you just you just sort of dig yourself down a rabbit hole
0: yeah steve mate seriously I tip my hat to you you know you're incredible and as I said to you I've seen the journey um you know Terry prick my ears now I know Terry is um he I'm, is a I'm prick glad, <laughs> yeah I'm glad that you kind of got this I want to say respect because you are aware of him there so you kind of respect what you can and can't do um and so you're kind of living with him
1: but um mate listen thank you so much for sharing your story I really appreciate no, you're it you're welcome mate thanks for having me and like I say it's 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 key to get the awareness out there and Absolutely. you know if there are people listening that have had you know similar side effects or just any any kind of niggles about it doesn't have to be about your brain it could just be anything go to your doctor and if you're not happy with what they tell you push to get a second opinion or push to get more tests or you know just generally don't give up until you get until you get the answers that you're happy with because you just never know you just mm. never know great advice mate great advice Steve, once again, mate, thanks
0: so much for your time. You're welcome, buddy. Anytime. Hi, right, guys. This is Lee. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you've been affected by any of issues discussed, you'll find some helpful links in the episode bio. Don't forget to subscribe.